Happy New Year! This is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. Every two weeks, we discuss a different housing research paper, translating it into non-academic language to better understand how to create more affordable and more accessible cities. Mike Lenz is my co-host for this episode, and we're talking to Assistant Professor Rob Collinson of the University of Notre Dame. You can probably also hear that I'm a bit under the weather as I record this intro, so I will make it quick. This week, our topic is housing choice vouchers, the federally funded, locally administered rent assistance program formerly known as Section 8, and also the inspiration for our podcast name. Over 2 million households rely on the program, and I think it's fair to say that Rob's work in this field has been really influential. His and his colleagues' research helped inform the expansion of more locally responsive and cost-effective voucher design in metro areas across the country, and that's what we'll be talking about. Specifically, we're discussing different ways that the program can be designed to provide the most benefits to renters and the least capture on the part of landlords. As many of our listeners will know, Democrats and the Biden administration have proposed expanding the program to make it an entitlement, so this is an especially timely conversation. Like a lot of what we talk about, it's a great case study on the importance of wonky policy design details. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and you can contact me with questions or research paper ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu or on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips. With that, here's Professor Rob Collinson. Welcome, everybody, to the Housing Voice podcast. I am Mike Lenz of the UCLA Lewis Center and the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. I'm joined this week with my co-host, Shane Phillips. Hello, Shane. Hello. And our special guest of this week is Rob Collinson, Assistant Professor of Economics from Notre Dame, an old friend of mine, uh, although I'm older than he is. And... Rob is uh, one of my very favorite, not just because we're friends, but one of my very favorite economists studying housing generally. And most specifically, we're going to get into a paper that he wrote with Peter Genong called How Do Changes in Housing Voucher Design Affect Rent and Neighborhood Quality? This was published in 2018 in the American Economic Journal. Welcome, Rob. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Mike. Great to see you, Shane. Very nice to meet you. Excited to be on the podcast. Awesome. So our first question that we always ask our guests is, if you were giving us a tour of your city, it can be South Bend or somewhere else that you love, what would you want to show us? Ooh, it's a good one. Is there something that we have to see? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, coming from Indiana, at least where I'm this new home state of mine, uh, you know, we, I think it kind of has the reputation as a flyover state of sorts. Uh, and so, you know, I think there are maybe not a lot of famous sites uh, that I would point people towards. I think for people that are sort of genuinely interested in cities, I think South Bend itself has a pretty interesting history. It was once the home of Studebaker, which is a big car manufacturer for a long time, uh, which sort of folded much much earlier than uh, a lot of the American manufacturing decline occurred. Uh, and so South Bend's got some interesting sort of old vestiges of the auto manufacturing past uh, a little south of downtown. So I might take you around there. 
But for those that sort of may may have more conventional preferences for sort of what they like to do, uh, I'd probably steer people, honestly, just towards the beaches of Lake Michigan. So, uh, Mike, you're a native Midwesterner, so you can have a greater appreciate, a, a greater appreciation uh, for the Great Lakes than most. But, you know, we have a lot of international faculty and stuff like that at, at Notre Dame that come and, and have never seen the Great Lakes before, uh, you know, they, they take a job at, at Notre Dame. And I, you know, I think personally, having grown up around them, that they're just like an amazing natural asset and are beautiful, particularly in the summer. Uh, and so I would probably steer people to go up to the sort of south, southeast end of Lake Michigan, not too far from where we are, uh, and enjoy some of the beauty of, of Lake Michigan for a day. I'm not sure I miss the beaches of <laughs> the upper Midwest, um, you know, being, in LA. being that um, <laughs> when I'm when I'm not living in London, as I am right now, I, I, I you know, of course, in in Los Angeles and about four, four miles from the Santa Monica Beach. So I think the beaches are totally fine where I'm at now. But any Californian would would, I think, find it strange how much I miss just like floating on a boat in the middle of a lake somewhere in the upper Midwest. Like I, I'm sorry. I do not wish to be like rustled and bustled on an ocean doing that. Like it, that seems it's too much. A little scary. Kind of yeah. Sick. It's a, you know, I've got a weak stomach. <laughs> there may be sharks, etc. Pretty sure. But like, the tranquility of like sitting in the middle of a lake in Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, whatever. It's, it, it's something that most Californians would have no idea about. We really don't have much lake going on here no. in, in Southern California. No. We've got like, what are you going to go to the Salton Sea or something? I'm not sure. <laughs> so we'll get into these papers. Um, and I'll actually say, first off, uh, kudos on a paper title that just very clearly <laughs> conveys what we're going to be talking about. How do changes in housing voucher design affect rent and neighborhood quality? That's exactly what we're looking at. Your paper is looking at two different changes to the design of the voucher program and their impact on two things, the rents that landlords charge and the quality of neighborhoods and housing units that voucher holders live in. The first change that you look at is a uniform increase to the maximum rents the vouchers will subsidize. And the second change increases the cap in high cost neighborhoods and actually lowers it uh, in low cost neighborhoods, what you describe as tilting the rent ceiling. And you find that the tilting approach is both more impactful in ways that we'll discuss and more cost effective to the point where the change in your study, at least, is basically cost neutral. And that's important, of course, because it means that we're ultimately getting more out of every dollar we spend on the program. So we'll get into those details and what lessons we can take from them. But let's just start with the basics as we always do. What is the Housing Choice Voucher Program? Um, if you could just give us a quick overview on who it helps, how it works, and you know, if you can give us a little bit of context as well about this process we've been going through for the past 40 years or so, where we've switched away from especially at the federal level, away from public housing and more toward uh, housing vouchers and the low-income housing tax credit, how it all fits into that picture. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So the housing voucher program is 
the largest rental assistance program, uh, at least administered by HUD, that we have currently in the U.S. Uh, it was created sort of in the mid-70s. Uh, they experimented with a couple different designs of it. The way it works today is uh, a tenant, a low-income tenant, uh, is issued a, a voucher from a housing authority. It's then uh, incumbent on the tenant to try to find a landlord that'll lease to them. Uh, and so they search for landlords primarily on the private market. And uh, if they find a landlord that is willing to lease to them, the voucher tenant, the person with the, the voucher is going to pay 30% of their adjusted income towards rent. And the government's sort of going to pick up the tab for the difference between that 30% and the market rent on the unit. And so we, the voucher program serves about 2.5 million or so households now. Uh, we've seen sort of moderate growth over the last few years. It serves overwhelmingly extremely low-income households, so the vast majority of people receiving vouchers earn less than 30% of area median income, so the sort of typical income for a voucher, house, a household with a voucher is going to be sort of on the order of $12,000 a year or something thereabout. Uh, so it's this very critical tool for trying to allow low-income households to be affordably housed. But it's also sort of through its history had maybe a dual goal in some sense of creating more choices uh, that are available to these low-income households about where to live, right? And so, Shane, you referenced sort of the, the movement away from something like public housing and towards vouchers. There, there were sort of two strains of that. One was, uh, you know, a lot of this was happening uh, during sort of Nixon era stuff, and there was a movement towards more private market involvement in the provision of housing for low-income households. And so some of that was sort of driving that, that progression. Mm -hmm. But there was also sort of an acknowledgement that there was early concerns about potentially concentrating, uh, you know, very low income households in only a small set of communities. And so the idea of sort of the long, the long story discussion about slums and sort of the implication of quote unquote slums for people's welfare, kids development, all of these different things, that was also sort of a strand in the development of the voucher program and, and uh, these sort of aspirations for the program to potentially open up new neighborhood choices for low income households. So, so Rob, thank you so much for that 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 context. It's really important. It's something that I think a lot of people don't know about the kind of the weeds of federal housing policy over the last few decades. Just how how profound a shift that's been, and and how large the voucher program is. Even if I'll you know kind of out myself as somebody who doesn't think it's large enough. And I guess you know another kind of on the is it large enough front. You know, there's. For, for economists in particular and people who really study incentives, you know, incentives of both uh, those who benefit from this program and also, you know, landlords and, and various other actors in, in housing provision, um, you know, there's really something about the efficiency of, of this program. Can you spell that out a little yeah. bit for us. Well, like, like why, why, why might it be better to, why do economists love vouchers or something? <laughs> right. Why yeah. do economists love vouchers? Like, why might we want to do it this way instead of, you know, just building? A yeah. Bunch so of I, so I'd say there's kind of two, 
so generally speaking, if you were to poll economists, you're exactly right. And I think that, you know, there's, there's going to be a strong preference in general among economists to use a tool like vouchers. And I would say there's sort of two main reasons for that. So the first goes back to sort of very basic intro micro uh, days that uh, probably many of your listeners, if they're forced or, or voluntarily took an economics class, will be familiar <laughs> with, which is which is that economists tend to prefer more cash-like forms of assistance uh, rather than giving things in kind. And so an in-kind meaning sort of paying for somebody's food or paying for somebody's housing or somebody's uh, you know health insurance or something like that. Now, a voucher is still in kind because it can only be used towards housing. However, it allows for more flexibility on the part of the recipient to sort of choose how much housing they want, the particular features of uh, housing that they care about most, at least in the ideal, right? So in the ideal, the voucher is allowing people to not be sort of forced into a particular selection of a public housing unit that becomes available that might be, you know, a certain quality level or in a certain neighborhood. It's saying, hey, people are actually actually going to be better off if we give them sort of an equivalent amount of resources, but allow them to instead choose, do I want, you know, the, the, the sort of nicely, nicer, uh, nicer maintained unit, or do I want the unit that's in the district that has really strong schools, or do I want, you know, the unit that's close to my job or what have you. And so part of the economists, uh, part of the reason why economists tend to favor something like vouchers over public housing is per- precisely because vouchers enable households in theory to have more choice over sort of the type of housing that they want and what they the, their sort of consumption split looks like between housing and, and other goods. And so that's sort of reason number one. The second reason why economists uh, tend to prefer vouchers is that when we provide a subsidy on the supply side, so when we subsidize producers to make stuff, a general concern in economics is what's known as crowd out, which is the idea that some of the people that were paying to make stuff that they either they would have made stuff in absence of the subsidy or that other producers of the good in question would have also made stuff. And so here are the ideas, you know, if we're in the business of subsidizing developers to make housing, well, they may make some new public housing, but that may take the place of some housing that would have been built otherwise, like some, maybe it's market rate, maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be subsidized housing, of course, but that sort of some of the net new units that are added are lost through uh, this process whereby developers build more, it pushes down prices, and then some developers are like less encouraged to go and enter the market and build more. And so economists have sort of like been skeptical of supply side subsidies in like the housing setting because of these concerns that by subsidizing developers were maybe each dollar that goes towards the development of these new units, some of it isn't actually really contributing to a new unit because it's crowding out some other housing production that would have otherwise already taken place. Now, you know, I think we could have a much longer conversation. I think one thing you would hear from economists overwhelmingly these days is we need a lot more housing. We need a lot more housing built writ large, and we need it a lot, uh, especially in particular types of housing markets where regulation exists in high levels. There's a lot of sort of exclusionary zoning and the other uh, and and sort of other regulatory tools that are limiting how much production happens. And so, to the extent that you know a subsidized public housing program was really able to add new units 
uh, to a market that otherwise has a lot of constraints that restrict new building, I think you could get potentially more economists to, to agree that that might, you know, be good altogether because sort of the amount of new production that it would really be displacing is maybe not that large. But historically, mm-hmm. sort of the reason that, that economists have tended to like vouchers is for these two reasons, that, that vouchers provide sort of potentially more choices to the tenant. Obviously, this is all in theory. We can talk about in practice how much it does that. And then second, sort of that it's not crowding out sort of private market activity that might otherwise happen. Yeah, you sort of anticipated my question about whether this crowd out is really happening, <laughs> especially... Since, you know, if you're building housing that's targeted at people earning 30% of area median income or below, that's an entire, you know, I won't say it's an entirely different market. Evan Mast and others have shown that, you know, the housing market is is connected from the top to the bottom. But, you know, generally speaking, it's not as though by building a home for someone earning 30% of AMI, you've crowded out the construction of a home for someone who can afford Twenty five hundred or three thousand dollars a month. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think where uh, where you might where crowd out concerns at least strike me as potentially more valid would be maybe the instance like maybe uh, low income housing tax credit developments in markets that are already really kind of like low rent, where the the rent mm-hmm. in the tax credit right, right. is pretty darn similar to prevailing market rents and things like that. So I think to the extent that crowd out is a concern, it's sort of more pronounced there than in a setting like. Uh, you know, public housing where these are deeply, deeply subsidized and people, you know, really can't find other housing that has comparable rents. So, yeah, right. We've talked about why vouchers generally, but there's a lot of ways that voucher benefits can be structured. And so what are some of the challenges or the inefficiencies of the program as we have it structured now? Or to put it another way, why does the design of the Housing Choice Voucher Program matter for the households who rely on them? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So that so I'll say that matters writ large for sort of two major reasons. So one references kind of this aspirational goal for the program that I highlighted earlier, which was that like vouchers, you know, regardless of the sort of place based versus people mobility sort of debate and which side you fall on. Vouchers, at least in theory, have always aspired to be, or at least from policymaker, genuine sort of uh, policymakers that care uh, deeply about the program, you know, the, the goal for the program has always been that it could be a tool to potentially unlock sort of new neighborhood options for very low income households. And so mm-hmm. to give them the possibility of if they want to live in a neighborhood that has low poverty or has low crime or has good access to jobs or has high quality schools, that the voucher could be a tool that would enable households to make those types of moves. So the sad reality is that sort of when we've looked at the best empirical evidence on the extent to which vouchers do that, it historically hasn't had particularly large impacts uh, on some of the sort of common measures that people have looked at. If you're mm-hmm. a private market tenant, you get issued a voucher, you tend to move to neighborhoods that are somewhat similar to the neighborhoods you came from. You know, might provide, and, and Mike, I, you could probably speak more on things like job access, but historically, at least in terms of moving the needle on poverty or sort of school quality or crime, you know, the, the effects haven't always been huge. And so uh, it hasn't really sort of, I would say, lived up to the promise of trying to deliver sort of a, a truly wider set of neighborhood options for low-income households that have a voucher. And so part of what we were interested with this study, and I, I can certainly talk about more, is like, well, what could we do differently about the design that might allow the program to better meet this sort of aspiration? goal. 
The other element of this is that, and this was something that Mike sort of indirectly referenced, is that the voucher program is not an entitlement, meaning there are many more households that want a voucher than there are resources available to serve them. So about one in four, one in five eligible households for a voucher actually receive it. And so given that resources are very constrained, we want to be sure that the resources that we're devoting are allowing sort of as many households as possible to take advantage of the voucher program. So one of the things Mm -hmm. that has been a concern for a a bit of a time in the voucher program is that sort of landlords may in some sense price discriminate against voucher holders and the idea that they sort of know people get a voucher. So in order to lease up with a landlord, you have to, in the voucher program, you have to inform them that you have a voucher and they have to be willing to accept it. And so there's sort of this weird dynamic at play whereby landlords kind of know voucher tenants can get rents of a particular level and they might use uh, that knowledge to sort of charge them potentially more than they would a non-voucher tenant. We can talk about sort of the evidence for that writ large as well as sort of what we are finding in the paper more directly, which is a slightly different dynamic. But if we care about, you know, serving as many low-income households with uh, a tool like vouchers as possible, right, ensuring that landlords aren't able to capture a bunch of the benefits of the program Mm -hmm. is going to be important. Can you can you just really quickly explain what the fair market rent is and how that factors in how landlords are able to sort of use that to potentially capture increases in it? Sure thing. So as I mentioned earlier, the tenants in the voucher program pay 30% of their income very typically, or they pay a minimum of 30% of their adjusted income towards rents. And then the government is sort of footing the difference between that 30% and the market rent on the unit. But policymakers don't or at least historically haven't wanted low-income households to live in super plushy luxury units. And so they put a Mm -hmm. cap on sort of how much the government will pay up to. They're not going to pay the difference between 30% of your income and, you know, uh, the uh, $5,000 a month student, you know, uh, luxury apartment. Uh, And so they, they cap, cap the amount that they're willing to pay with something called the payment standard. And the payment standard is basically set as a percentage of something called the fair market rent. So uh, we're in the housing program world, which means we're in, uh, intensive on jargon and acronyms. But uh, <laughs> so many, so many phrases that have no meaning to anybody. Exactly. And, and percents of percents. I love that that yes. aspect of all of this. It's like exactly. So the the key thing is that the payment standard is very closely tied to the, to the fair market rent. Very often, it's right. like one hundred percent of the fair market rent, meaning those two things are equal, or it's like ninety or one hundred and ten percent of it. it. Tends to be very tightly tied to the fair market rent. Well, where does the fair market rent come from and what is it designed to do? Well, HUD publishes basically estimates in each metro area and sort of county groups in non-metro parts of the U.S., uh, where they basically specify what they think sort of a standard quality rental should rent for uh, by particular bedroom sizes, which is allowed to vary across all the sort of metro areas of the U.S. So HUD publishes these fair market rents. They're set at the 40th percentile of this rent distribution for the metro area, or more formally, the FMR area. And those uh, are basically providing dollar amounts by bedroom size that that then basically very tightly inform the local cap or rent ceiling that PHA set um, by virtue of their payment standard. And so PHAs are the public housing are public authority. housing authorities. Yeah. So maybe it's like a little helpful to ground a numeric example. So like if I'm a low uh, a low income tenant with a voucher, suppose I make twelve thousand dollars a year, so I make a thousand dollars a month. 
uh, I'm going to pay 30% of my income towards rent. And let's say the local housing authority has set the payment standard to be $1,200 per month. Well, what that means is if I find a unit that rents exactly for $1,200, I'm going to pay that $300 and the housing authority is going to pay that $900 difference between my $300 contribution and the $1,200 rent that happens to be the same as the payment standard. If I were to rent a unit that's less than Mm -hmm. the payment standard, like say I rent a unit that's only a thousand bucks, then the government will pay that $700 difference. Right. If I rent a unit that's more than that $1,200, so suppose I rent a a unit for $1,300 a month, I can actually rent that unit under the rules of the voucher program. But now I'm going to pay $300, so my 30% of my income, plus the difference between that payment standard amount, which we said was $1,200, and the rent on the unit, which is $1,300. So I would pay that additional $100, giving me a grand total of $400 in rent contribution. Mm. And so for rental units that are priced above this payment standard, this rent ceiling, as we call it in the paper, uh, those additional costs above and beyond the payment standard come out of the pocket of the tenant. And that's important So the, the because what it means is that this, this payment standard is going to have implications for the types of units that voucher tenants are going to elect to rent out because they become the sort of residual payer. They, they have to foot the bill uh, for any amount more than this payment standard. And so this is really closely linked to what I would call like the generosity of the voucher program, basically. Are you going to allow people with vouchers to rent sort of relatively more expensive units or are you going to curtail it so they can only rent sort of very, very low cost units? And so what we end up doing in our paper is studying some different types of changes in that amount, that rent ceiling. And look at the implications for those changes, both for the types of neighborhoods that the tenants get and also for the rents that landlords charge. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, you know, we look at really two major types of changes. So one is what we call the sort of uniform increase or the across the board. And so in my little numeric example where they initially are setting the payment standard at $1,200, and that's obviously a rent that's way too low for LA. So let's say that's the fair market <laughs> rent for for a, a three-bedroom in South Bend. That's about, I think, a three-bedroom in South Bend to give you an idea of uh, the, the low-cost housing we have here. Uh, but so let's say the payment are standard- Are you hiring 12- at Notre Dame? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we have our $1,200 payment standard for a three-bedroom in South Bend. One of the sort of changes we're going to look at is suppose HUD just decides to increase the FMR. And by virtue of that increase in FMR, uh, it's going to trigger local housing authorities to adjust up their payment standards. And so we say, what's basically, what's the impact of moving from basically that $1,200 FMR to maybe, let's say, $1,350 or something? So they increase basically that ceiling up from $1,200 to $1,350. Well, in theory, that's more potential income, in essence, for the voucher tenant to potentially use to go out and try to find a new Right. Like this Mm -hmm. is raising the cap. It's meaning that there's potentially nicer units out there that the voucher holder could go out and lease with. And we have some sort of, you know, clever research designs that, you know, we call quasi experiments. And and I'm happy to dig into the details or not of those. But we're basically going to look at what happens to voucher tenants in areas that get somewhat randomish increases in this ceiling and compare them to to voucher tenants in places that that either don't get those increases or even potentially see decreases. And one thing that we see is sort of when we increase in an across the board way, meaning that the, that move from $1,200 to 1350 
That's true irrespective of the neighborhood that you locate in within, let's say, South Bend. So we raise it everywhere, potentially. What we find is that voucher holders don't seem to necessarily respond by going out and be- getting better quality units, at least as measured mm-hmm. by both sort of like a variety of survey data on sort of what they what they report about the quality internally of the structure that they're in, but also by sort of measures of neighborhood. Uh, we don't see that they're sort of taking that additional money and going out and finding better units. What we do find, however, is that landlords seem to increase rents potentially a little more than they otherwise would in response to the availability of basically more subsidy for which the government is the residual payer. So they're going to respond to this increase in the cap by saying, hey, actually, you know, maybe we can raise the rent a little bit more on our voucher tenants, because now we know that the local FMR is going up from $1,200 to $1,350. Yeah, it doesn't change how much the tenants themselves have to pay. Exactly. So the, the because the tenant is price insensitive, as a as an economist would describe it, you know they're maybe not taking advantage of this in the same way, and it's enabling landlords to maybe get a little bit claw some of that benefit uh, t- towards themselves. Mm-hmm. And Mike, do you want to ask about the the research design? I do think this is worth worth talking about. Well, I mean, I was first going to make a couple of very important insights. Um, <laughs> so so one is that it's it is pretty crucial to have economists on the case, or at least people who are very good at math, because there was a lot of math in there. Um, there are a lot of dollar values that you have to keep track of, not just the jargon. And then as somebody who has spent a, you know, a decade teaching this stuff and, and more than a decade re- researching this stuff, it is so complicated, this policy making uh, contraption that we have created and and kind of layered on over the years that I still learn things when other people explain it <laughs> or, or I'm reminded of things that I forgot about the complexity of of the voucher program so thank you uh, for for walking us through that and then and then getting into um, how you or on, on some of those policy changes that you're able to take advantage of. So I guess you talked about be, you know, being able to study this, you know, random or quasi random variation. Can you, can you walk us through like what makes the kind of effects of these changes plausible or, or you're more plausible because of the nature of these, these program changes and how you're able to study it? Yeah. So, so I think the key thing to think about was, you know, we'd like to, the sort of thought of experiment that we'd like to run is sort of, we've got a set of housing markets and we want to randomly give some housing markets voucher values that are higher, basically FMRs and consequently payment standards that are higher in some markets and leave others untouched. And then we would sort of see how do tenants respond and change behavior? How do landlords respond to these particularly randomly allocated increases in FMRs and and consequently payment standards. Now, the challenge with just saying, looking at, say, in what places are FMRs going up and in what places are they not, and and comparing the, the activity in places where FMRs are naturally going up versus places where they're not, is that the places where FMRs are naturally going up presumably are places that 
rents are going up writ large. That's why the FMR is going up. Maybe the housing market is booming. Uh, you know, there's maybe a lot of forces that might cause a voucher holder to have maybe more trouble getting into a better neighborhood or a better unit, or, uh, you know, might cause landlords to be particularly aggressive at jacking up rents or what have you. And so, uh, you know, just- So the idea, just, just to spell this out, the idea is basically that in those places, the FMR might be going up, but your ability to afford a place at the higher FMR is, is basically staying the same. You can't, no higher quality neighborhoods or units are opening up to you because the rents in those are also going up by a similar Yeah, amount. yeah, exactly. And so what we're trying to do is separate out a little bit the what's the role of you know, increasing basically how much subsidy is available to the voucher holder while sort of holding constant the dynamics of the housing market, if mm-hmm. you will. And so the way we try to get at this, we do two different ways. Let me describe the first, because uh, I think it sort of relates intuitively to that random experiment that I just described, which is we look at these years in which HUD updates their FMR values according to new census data. And so in a really sort of arcane fact of how housing, uh, how housing FMRs are set, HUD basically for a long time would get some data from census. They would do, and that census data would only come in once a decade because it was census data. And they would have mm-hmm. to do various updates to it. And basically, right, and then basically as time passes, a new census would come out and they would have to update the values. And because of the nature of the corrections they were doing and because there's sort of this large change to the amount of information they have to set FMRs, you would get these really wild swings in FMRs that are basically, in a sense, correcting for accumulated measurement error. Uh, and because they're because they're changing them year by year based on limited data, but then every ten years they get this really exhaustive data that they can yeah be more exactly. With. So they yeah. intru- they they insert this new injection of data, and yes, there's some signal in it, but there's a lot of noise in the correction, right? Because they're they're the HUD sort of guesses ten years after the data came out about what mm. the rents should have been in particular places tends to be a pretty noisy measure. And so basically what we see is that there's this sort of large correction in some places. The correction can go up or down. And uh, that correction is uncorrelated with sort of like measures of what's going on in the housing market. So it sort of passes the smell test of this sort of randomized thought experiment that we had in our minds of some places get random increases, other places don't. Uh, and we use that to basically then say, well, what happens? What's the experience of voucher tenants in those places? Do they, in fact, move to better quality units, neighborhoods? Do they, uh, you know, do landlords change sort of the rents that they're charging voucher holders in the, in the different regions? And so that's the that's how, or at least one of the ways that you looked at the uniform rent increase and what yep. the impact of that was. Now, can you tell us what the tilted ceiling scenario is and how you studied that one? Yeah, absolutely. So the, so as I mentioned, you know, with FMRs, they're set over the rent distribution of an entire metro area. So when HUD goes and gets this data from census that then informs that final FMR calculation, they're getting a statistic that, you know, for the Los Angeles area is basically the Los Angeles metro. So it's going to use units in Silver Lake as well as units in Englewood and South Central, and it's going to use Hollywood and, and Melrose, you know, all of these different neighborhoods that themselves have a ton of variation in underlying rents, right? So as we know, in cities, there's wide variation across cities or metro areas 
in the rent levels within particular neighborhoods. Uh, and so starting uh, in 2010, as a result of a lawsuit that actually took place uh, in Dallas, there was a measure by HUD to experiment with a new way of setting these fair market rents. So instead of setting them uniformly across a metro area, they would basically calculate within zip codes the FMR within each of these different zip codes and apply those instead of a single number by bedroom size across. So they would do sort of zip by bedroom rent figures. And what that does is it has the effect of, you know, as we would expect, increasing uh, the fair market rents in, in high rent zip codes and lowering the fair market rent uh, in low rent zip codes. And so in essence, if you sort of imagine on your y-axis, sort of the, the rent ceiling, basically what the government will pay up to, and you imagine on your x-axis, some notion of sort of neighborhood quality that's somewhat related to rents, what's happening is that the, the uh, and my camera's reversed, the, 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 <laughs> the rents are going to go up in the neighborhoods with higher quality, uh, higher rent values and presumably higher quality. And the payment standard is going to fall in neighborhoods that have sort of, quote unquote, lower quality or lower rents. Now, I want to be careful about what neighborhood quality means, because I think it can mean a lot of different things. Here, I'm just sort of talking about it as being very closely connected to the market rents in those neighborhoods. But Mm -hmm. basically, in response to this lawsuit in Dallas, starting in 2010, uh, they began to introduce these zip codes based fair market rents rather than setting it uniformly across the metro area. And so we take that particular uh, sort of natural experiment in some sense, and we compare basically what happens to voucher holders in Dallas who are affected, who are subject to this new policy, while the voucher holders in Fort Worth, just next door, featuring a similar housing market, they are not able to take advantage of this policy. And so what we do Mm -hmm. is basically compare what's happening to the the amount that voucher holders are getting in terms of neighborhood quality, what's happening to the types of communities that they're moving into uh, in Dallas relative to in Fort Worth, uh, sort of before and after this change. This is a bit of an aside from the previous question, but I did want to ask it. Um, The update that happens based on the census data takes place, in, in your case, in 2005 for the 2000 census. Yep. Why does it take five years <laughs> to, to update that? I mean, I know it takes time to tabulate everything, but like five years seems like a long time. Yeah, so they, they've they've had periods where it, it's happened a little faster. Uh, you know, I don't want to uh, certainly disparage my colleagues at HUD. I think it does legitimately. <laughs> it takes a long time for the, the estimates to come from Census Bureau. It's what's known as a special tabulation. Um, and there's just kind of a lot of work that goes into incorporating basically this new census data, making sure it's delivering sensible estimates. This is a figure that's going to impact, you know, millions of voucher households. And and so, you know, I think historically uh, there's been some longer lags in when those things get updated. Uh, you know, the silver lining is all of this, all of this is that uh, we now have the American Community Survey, which is replacing the census long form, which was the previous tool used by by HUD mm-hmm. to construct the FMRs, and so now we get more, we get fuzzier but more regular uh, sort of pictures of what's happening to rents in different right. communities. So and still so pretty good quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those corrections are happening a bit quicker now. Okay, so we've described what the uniform versus the tilted rent ceiling changes look like. 
what was the result of these two different changes then? What did you find? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, with the with the uniform increase, basically, where we don't find much evidence that tenants go out and take advantage of essentially this extra money available in uh, that their voucher is now worth more. They don't seem to use to, to rent units that are sort of higher quality as measured by sort of the particulars of the unit, when it was built, the size, whether or not the tenant reported, you know, physical issues with the unit, et cetera. They don't seem to at least better quality units. Uh, and they also don't necessarily seem to go to neighborhoods that look very different from the neighborhoods they were coming from. So they tend to sort of mm-hmm. stay in the types of neighborhoods that they were leasing in before this increase. We do find that landlords increase rents somewhat in response. Uh, you know, it's very far from capturing the full dollar of that, you know, dollar increment increase in, in the rent ceiling. Nevertheless, like it does accumulate over time. And so, uh, you know, lap- landlords are benefiting from these increases. That's with the uniform increase. When we look instead at this policy that then changes it and basically allows voucher the rents that vouchers can pay to go up in sort of higher rent neighborhoods that we presume are somewhat higher quality and, and cuts the value in lower rent neighborhoods, there we actually find evidence of fairly sizable behavioral response on the part of the tenants. So tenants in Dallas that were able to take advantage of this increase in FMR and the sort of higher quality neighborhoods, they appear to respond to this increase and and also the cut in low rent neighborhoods by moving out of a lot of the poorest neighborhoods and toward neighborhoods that have both lower poverty, but also quite a bit lower crime and lower levels of unemployment. So um, there we see a fairly sharp behavioral change on the the part of tenants where they're now migrating to less impoverished, sort of more somewhat safer neighborhoods as a result of this policy change. Uh, in contrast to sort of the across the board increase. So as economists, we like to say like, you know, incentives matter in a sense that, you know, by, by, uh, changing a bit the incentives that voucher holders face to go lease up in higher, higher quality or sort of, uh, less impoverished, le- lower crime neighborhoods by virtue of having the voucher worth more in those neighborhoods, but also worth less in the neighborhoods that maybe they would have chosen otherwise, people seem to be spurred a bit more into action and seem to be migrating more to uh, neighborhoods that we would presume potentially maybe offer sort of better opportunities for children and things like that. What role do you think information plays in that? I mean, there's been a lot of discussion at various points in in kind of thinking about how to reform the voucher program that really kind of put some faith in like how we can, you know, maybe counsel people to different neighborhoods, right? And like, so what do we know about like when these changes are made? Obviously, like a beneficiary of this program is is not is not going to be versed in in things like you know, uniform and tilted changes and, you know, but I mean, but I mean, even more simplistically, like, right, like, what, to what extent do they know like that, that, okay, I can use a higher, higher dollar voucher in in particular places? Yeah, so I, th- I think it's fairly salient in the sense that the housing authorities in response to getting this, uh, you know, zip code list essentially from HUD, they then have to publish sort of what the payment standards are in the different neighborhoods by bedroom size. And so if you're searching around for a unit, uh, you're, there's a good chance you're, you're going to look up your zip code potentially and say like, does, 
would a voucher work here? Now, you know, I, I don't know that uh, a lot of tenants would be like, oh, I'm getting the zip code payment standard rather than, you know, this uniform increase and necessarily know the reasons behind all of this. But I do think the the, the change in in the sense of providing potentially a very different dollar threshold that becomes uh, you know, the focus of finding units often is is relatively salient. I will say like, and this is a little bit what you were asking, but sort of somewhat tangential, which is that I think like the role of information and counseling in neighborhood choices is tremendously important. And so I think this is mm -hmm. one part of it. There's sort of like, I think the bigger question might be, do families know about which, how well do families know about sort of the level of opportunity that different communities might offer uh, for them and sort of how accurate does that map to, to reality, right? And so I think some of this work that Raj Shetty and others are doing with creating moves to opportunity, CMTO in Seattle, that's providing sort of custom counseling and very concrete information on like, these are the neighborhoods where, you know, mm -hmm. at least the data suggests your child is most likely to thrive. I think in a lot of ways that the information is quite important there. There's the separate piece of how much do they know the information about the degree to which the program works and things like that. Um, but I think, you know, concretely, if you're a family and you're trying to lease in a low income neighborhood and, you know, you could previously use your voucher to rent a unit for $1,200 and now the housing authority is saying it only pays up to $800 in that neighborhood. That message is, you know, I think comes through somewhat clearly when you go and, you know, try to lease that $1,200 unit in, in a low rent neighborhood. So, but I do think information in the housing market writ large is, you know, a really potentially important channel uh, that we could make progress on in terms of getting potentially the voucher program to live up to some of its promise in terms of delivering higher opportunities for families. Yeah, and to talk about the cost here a little bit, because I mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation when I was giving the summary, I think there are sort of two extremes that you could see. One is, and this is specifically with the, the tilted ceiling, the small area fair market rent option. One thing that could happen is rents in lower income neighborhoods fall. The, the FMR in those zip codes goes down. It goes down in some places, up in others. But no one changes their living situation, and so just the amount that HUD is paying falls. Another option is you do this tilted ceiling. Everyone moves to a higher quality neighborhood or higher quality housing, and the costs go way up. And there's a whole spectrum of options in between that. And what you found basically is that just enough people moved and, and you know the cost fell in the lower places and, and rose in the higher places that it was essentially cost neutral, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you like long term, if you if you thought this tool was, you know, really going to encourage a huge number of voucher holders to go out and move to, uh, you know, neighborhoods that are higher rent, overall, this will cause voucher cost increase over time. That's definitely mm -hmm. the case. Yeah, in our particular setting, the amount of migration, which is pretty substantial, it is not enough to uh, to exceed basically or exceed by very much the amount uh, that's saved essentially by cutting back on how much rents are paid in in low rent zip codes. So it ends up yeah. sort of cost neutral, but um, you could see it going either direction, potentially cost saving. If there are no migration, uh, you know, it would be a cost savings thing. We might worry, obviously, the voucher holders in low rent neighborhoods 
are paying more out of pocket now, or they're getting lower quality units or what have you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in the other extreme with tons of migration or response, it would, it would tend to increase the cost of the voucher program on a per. Yeah. And, and to be clear that that's not necessarily a bad outcome because in theory people have, well, in practice, people will be living in higher quality neighborhoods and we know there are positive things associated with that. That's right. So it's not not to say that if the costs went up because of this, it would be a bad thing, but the fact that people moved and still costs didn't go up is, is a pretty impressive um, outcome. Maybe we can get into that topic a little further by talking about the other programs that try to achieve similar things. So at the end of the article, you compare the estimated impact of the tilted rent ceiling or small area fair market rent program, that design change, to other programs that share the goal of improving housing and neighborhood quality for low-income renters. So could you just quickly summarize what those other programs do and how this design change compared in terms of effectiveness? Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, we, we obviously, uh, compare it to the, to the uniform increase and show that it's more effective than that. You know, we also thought about, well, like, how does this compare to the magnitude of changes that we observe in a setting like the moving to opportunity experiment that directly required voucher holders to lease in neighborhoods with census tracts below 10% poverty. Uh, and so mm-hmm. what we see is like, we, we don't generate nearly as large uh, an increase in in sort of neighborhood improvements, if you will, as MTO. But MTO's sort of mandate came at a pretty big cost in the sense that only about 47% of the people that went in the experimental group in MTO uh, that had this restriction leased up with a voucher compared to basically 60% in the group that had sort of an unrestricted typical voucher. And oh, so one thing that we want to like point out is like there's this, like, yes, you can do better, but can you do better in sort of a cost neutral way that also seems to not have uh, other sort of really significant downsides? Right. Um, although certainly mm-hmm. we, can, we can talk more about potential limitations of this. The small area fair market rents, the, the, the fair market rents that are calibrated to zip code, those are now being used in many more metro areas around the country. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the they, after the initial Dallas HUD did a pilot in, uh, I think, Four or five, I forget, it was originally targeted to be, I think, five additional communities. Can't remember exactly if all five followed through. There's been some subsequent evaluation of those that found results that seem really consistent with what we find, which was encouraging. And then more recently than that, they, the HUD actually decided to change what was a previous policy. So the previous policy, which we also study as a part of our sort of exploration of the across the board increase, the way it worked was basically housing authorities that were not doing a good job getting their voucher holders into less concentrated poverty neighborhoods, so places that were sort of doing a bad job on deconcentration, if you will, mm-hmm. they would be eligible after some number of years of poor performance for this across the board increase that went sort of above the usual amount of payment standard or FMR increase that that housing authorities would be eligible for. So we also look at that policy and find super similar results to our other sort of way of investigating the across the board increase. And so what happened was HUD decided to basically take that policy, which we showed was not very effective, and instead replace it with a policy that moved those communities to small small area fair market rents or these zip code fair market rents as an alternative Mm -hmm. to that across the board increase. So that was like a nice 
very natural policy change that was suggested by our results and the wonderful people at HUD, including uh, some of Mike and I, my uh, former colleagues at NYU Furman and other places helped to push through. Um, and so there's been some concrete policy change. It's now, I, I always misquote, it's either like 27 or 28 metro areas that I think are now subject to the fair market rents that are set at the zip code level that are getting that policy instead of the one that we we found to be less effective. So that'll be a future paper, I imagine. <laughs> so we've been talking about the positive impacts of these changes. Are, are there any drawbacks that you've observed or you're, you know, you speculate might be happening? You did talk about, for example, you know, if you're lowering the cap in these, you know, quote unquote, lower quality neighborhoods or just less expensive neighborhoods, maybe now you're limiting people to the lower quality homes within those lower quality neighborhoods, for example. Is there anything else like that, that, you know, there are concerns with this approach? Yeah. I mean, I think the one reality is it's hard to search for about, or it's hard to find a housing with, uh, with a voucher. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, in general, we don't have good national statistics on this. This is like a big point of frustrations for many housing researchers like, like us. Uh, but, Basically, we think about 70% of families issued a voucher successfully lease up, so about 30% are missing out. And one possibility is that if historically those people that uh, were sort of on the margin of missing out were very concentrated in the poorest neighborhoods uh, in terms of where they ended up successfully leasing up, if we've made it somewhat harder to lease up in those neighborhoods, even if we made it easier, presumably, in these higher quality neighborhoods, uh, you know, there could still be the potential that people are missing out uh, on successfully leasing up in the first place with a voucher. And we're mostly limited by a lack of high quality data uh, to be able to study that particular element more in our paper, but but it's certainly a concern. Yeah. And I mean, generally, like that's a big conundrum that we still haven't quite solved, right? Whereas like, you know, at some juncture, you you rightfully noted that landlords, when they, some landlords when they see that you're paying with a voucher, they're like, okay, I may know or intuit or whatever, or you know, stereotype that this is a, a potentially low-income individual with perhaps inconsistent earned income. But I know that the U.S. federal government or the local housing authority, more specifically, is going to cut me a check. Like that, 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 and that thing is not bouncing, right? <laughs> and so like there on the one hand you have these you have you know a a group a class of landlords i mean there's you know a lot, you know a lot written on this it's it's more complicated than I'm than I'm portraying it but you have groups of landlords who are absolutely fine uh fine with and if not seeking out uh voucher holders depending on you know in part because of the the market that they typically you know rent in or rent out in and then on the other hand, we have like a lot of discri more discriminatory landlords that specifically don't, don't allow it or just generally for a host of reasons that we don't fully understand very well, I don't think, um, because as Rob notes data, like we don't know why or there, there's a group of people or a group of um, voucher holders that just don't successfully use the voucher to to lease a unit, right? And so on the one hand, it's like, oh, it should be easier or at least easier than like similarly situated people. And then on the other hand, we have this this, this hole of, of people that are not able to use it. 
Yeah. And I think like the, the, we, you know, I think we, if the policy was just giving a haircut to the, the landlords that you describe, which I, you know, totally like, and Eva Rosen, I think has done some great like qualitative yeah. work on, yeah. on that, this group, you know, she, I think she was definitely like, in mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so like, if we were just forcing those people to take a haircut, uh, you know, this policy would, seem like a completely unambiguous win probably in the minds of a lot of people uh you know obviously i still think it's 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 an important and and uh, on net beneficial policy change but you know you you might worry certainly that that some households have a harder time finding housing under it right right just uh mechanistically how does the the use of the voucher work I, i'm trying to think about how landlords are actually able to increase their rents in response to these changes so it could be, you know, that they know the rents are set at this level, the fair market rents are set at a specific level, and so they set their rents when they have a vacancy at that rate and just hope that a, uh, a voucher holder takes it, even if other people maybe don't value it at that same level. That seems like a risky approach because there are not that many voucher holders and most units are not rented by them. Another could be they like advertise it at a certain price, but when they get a voucher applicant, they increase it because the applicant doesn't care. Like that doesn't sound like you can do that probably, <laughs> legally at least. Uh, I'm just curious how this actually works in practice. Like how are they able yeah. to discriminate in this way? Yeah, so we, and just to be clear, so the type, what we are looking at in particular, because largely those challenges that you described, it's a little hard to figure out exactly how the mechanism would work uh, sort of on average if we were to just like, compare certain landlords' rents, you know, after they get a voucher holder to other neighborhoods around it or something, that, that might be a somewhat fraud exercise. What, so what we do is we look at once you're in a program, once once you basically already have a voucher tenant, and all of a sudden your area gets hit with, again, this kind of random shock to the payment standard that allows it to go up, right? The market fundamentals for that person, because you know, we show that the evidence that this increase in the payment standard isn't related to what's going on in the market. There's not a market force sort of enabling the landlord to just increase the rents for the tenant. These are sort of things coming driven by these strange revisions essentially that happen to the FMR. And so what that allows us to do is say like from year to year, how much does the incremental rent go up when they get this sort of big surprise increase possible in the payment standard. And, and uh, you know, mechanistically, it's important to realize like payment standards are published by the housing authority. So they, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a landlord and you're working with the voucher program, you can go to your PHA website and you can pull up what you're eligible for. And so I think these comparisons of how sort of year to year voucher rents change in response to these big sort of shocks in the availability of basically more subsidy to charge more to the tenant is what we found to be sort of the the best setting that we could persuasively study it. Um, I mean, I will say like in the qualitative work, as I've mentioned, I think like in Eva's book, uh, you know, she has instances where landlords, you know, um, have vans near a housing authority office and they might take them on a tour to their units. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And so there you're getting some potential mechanisms for sort of price discriminating. They, they tell them this is the advertised rent, you know, in person or by taking them there. And maybe the tenant hasn't sort of looked up to verify if that's in fact the amount charged right. uh, to potential other uh, tenants. Right. This might be a question to, to both of you to an extent, but um, we've we've brought up the funding issue several times and how housing vouchers are not 
an entitlement. I think the figure is roughly a quarter of households who are, are eligible based on their income actually receive one because there's just not enough money spent on them. There's not enough vouchers to go around. How does your research on this fit into this idea of making an entitlement? This has been proposed by the Biden administration. I think it's become more of a priority for Democrats and people more on the left. This is something where more people would have it. And so uh, in theory, that should also affect the market writ large and even potentially people who are, you know, just over the threshold of eligibility. What are your thoughts on how that fits into this? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And just to plug a little bit of something else that uh, I wrote not too long ago with Ingrid, uh, Mike and I's old advisor, uh, and, and with Jens Ludwig in the annals of political and social science, we take a little bit of a sort of theoretical look at what are some of the lessons sort of that we might be able to apply uh, historically and both and, and from economics in thinking about some of these proposed expansions to something like the voucher or to, to instead do th- something maybe through the tax code that provides something, you know, close in spirit to a voucher. So I think one thing that you were hinting at, which I, which I think is worth talking a little bit about, which is that if we flood the market essentially with a bunch more housing subsidies, uh, you know, if we're in markets where housing supply is pretty inelastic, meaning that it's not super responsive to changes in price, you know, places where housing supply is somewhat fixed, if we all of a sudden give everyone a bunch more money for housing, you know, landlords might recognize this and start to mm-hmm. jack up rents as a, as a result because people have sort of more demand for housing. And so one thing that I think we need to take seriously as, you know, people that are interested in, in the expansion of the voucher program and, you know, think that the, the significant amount of oversubscription and sort of the lack of resources is a problem. I think we do want to think carefully about like, how can we design the program in such a way that, you know, if there are these larger expansions in resources, that we could be doing it in a way that's thoughtful of those potential uh, ramifications. So one thing right. I'll highlight that we mentioned a little bit in the paper and actually ties in a bit to uh, to my own geography here. So fun fact for you both, in the 70s, uh, HUD, when they were first designing the voucher program, was concerned with precisely this issue, the idea that if you created a new housing subsidy and you made it quite widely available to households, that the housing market might respond or that the housing market might in some sense fail to respond and landlords would increase rents quite a bit without necessarily expanding supply of new housing. And a lot of the benefits of that subsidy would get captured by the landlord. And so they wanted, of course, like, uh, you know, an economist or program evaluator would want to do the, the thought experiment they would like to do is like, let's dramatically expand housing subsidies in some markets and not others, and then study what happens to rents and all these different things, right? That's the Fun. experiment they want to run. It turns out that would be an incredibly expensive experiment, right? Because you basically be creating entitlements in some places. And, and so they couldn't do that. This was the 70s. They couldn't do it uh, politically infeasible. So what they decided to do was let's try doing this in two markets that are pretty smallish, that are fairly different housing market conditions. And let's kind of compare what happens in those places 
to the sort of other markets that look similar, right? So this is kind of like the 70s mm -hmm. version of the difference in difference or synthetic mm -hmm. control or something like that. And so they do this and they do it in two places. And one of them is St. Joseph County, Indiana, which is where uh, South Bend is and where I'm sitting currently. So uh, fun fact of history, they do this in South Bend and in Green Bay, incidentally. Uh, Green Bay is the tight housing market in their experiment. So it gives you an idea. The, sort of just, just to interject with some very important and topical stuff, these are not my favorite football teams you're talking about right now <laughs> at all. Okay. I, I will shut up now. Well, we Sorry. have a new coach. Uh, that's yeah. All I can oh, say. oh uh, my God. We didn't even get to Brian Kelly yet. Oh my God. <laughs> Wonderful. So, so anyway, so I, I, I suspect I know you that you have some purple garment underneath somewhere. Uh, and so I, I, as a local Chicagoan, I'm not, uh, you know, partial to Green Bay either. Uh, so they right. do this in these two housing <laughs> markets. Um, and, uh, Basically, what they find is a few really interesting facts. So one, the big headline is that they don't see their rents increase a lot. Now, the main reason, there's really two main reasons why that's the case. And then there's a bunch more reasons that contribute to those reasons. So the two reasons that that's the case, one is that the housing markets respond Landlords sort of start upgrading units that were marginal quality to say like, oh, we got, we, there's more money out there for housing now. We're going to sort of take some vacant unit in South Bend and rehab it. So now we're adding to the supply of housing. So supply is somewhat elastic in this sense, which is meaning mm -hmm. that some of that rent increase is being blunted by that. The other fact is that there's not a huge demand surge as a result of this increase in resources for housing. And that's really mm. interesting. And it arises for a few different reasons related to the design of the subsidy. So unlike the current version of the voucher where I pay 30% of my income, and even if I rent a unit that's $300 below the payment standard, I still pay 30% of my income for housing. So one interesting thing they did with the housing subsidy in that uh, in this experiment is they allowed the tenant to basically keep any amount that was between essentially what was the fair market rent at the time and the mm. rent on the unit if that amount was less. So essentially, they in a, a tenant that elected to economize on rent would essentially get rebated some of the subsidy. Wow. And so yeah. what that does is it gives the tenant sort of more potential interest in negotiating, being selective about particular units. Yeah. And it gives them another channel through which like if rents are going up, like maybe I'll just find, you know, I'll rent this one and I'll use that's less than the payment standard and I'll use that money towards something else. And so I do think when we consider sort of the expansion of housing subsidies and try to think about what are going to be the market-wide implications of doing so, um, being careful about how they're designed and thinking, are there creative ways that we can shape the subsidy that might give tenants more incentive to potentially, uh, you know, economize if they decide that that's what they want to do, mm -hmm. which would which would reduce some of the pressure on rents and reduce some of the bargaining power that landlords might have. Right. And then, of course, like, you know, you, you I think you could get in kind of an endless or unresolvable debate about like kind of paternalism versus yeah cash just you know, cash versus, versus any of this yeah, 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 yeah. of no, course right. like some some people would would be very adamant that like well you don't want you don't want people to like skimp on their own housing and yeah you know, exactly. I think mm -hmm. I think like your your util utility utility maximizing believing you know economists is like hey let's let them decide like what the best you know 
housing bundle is for them, right? Yeah, exactly. So that you could totally, yeah, I think that's right, right? Obviously, the reason why we don't have that current design is precisely because of, you know, a paternalistic sort of view or one that like, you know, people are not maybe making the right decisions. We need to make sure they have a minimum quality and they, the landlord right. has to pass HQS and they have to do all of this stuff. And so this is providing sort of a different paradigm, but um, I think is useful. It's always like, I think, beneficial to try to learn from history. Sometimes history is a horrible mm-hmm. guide, but I think it, it, in this case, it was- <laughs> You can learn was, from it that way too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And the mistakes. So, uh, it, it's important to learn from both, but- um, To add one more, you know, beyond the sort of setting a cap, but letting people keep the, the difference in what they actually pay- I think this issue of having a, a, a sharp cutoff threshold is also maybe something that needs to be thought about in the future where you don't want to have, you know, if you earn $30,000 a year, you get up to say $1,200 a month to help you with rent. If you make $30,001 a year, you get nothing. That has, you know, there are political challenges with that. There's just like practical, the person who earns one more dollar is not, you know, so much better off that they don't need any assistance compared to the person who earns $1 less. There's a lot of things to consider, but that is all dependent on having enough money in the first place to to make these kinds of decisions. Yeah, exactly. And one of the kind of nice things I will say, so there's always a little bit of a tension here for economists about sort of program design, but like the current voucher scheme is very tapered such that as your income goes up, like your rent contribution is going up, which you know, economists mm-hmm. might worry discourages work and things like that, but it does have the beneficial property of it means that like there's not these weird threshold effects whereby, you know, yeah. you earn a bit more in this year and all of a sudden you're no longer eligible for any subsidy. Instead, you're, you're you know, your subsidy is just going going yeah. down a little yeah, bit true. because you're required to pay more in rent. So the, the voucher design, you know, doesn't have these sharp cliffs, but some of the proposed, I think, tax changes and things that have been on, on, under consideration for others do maybe have some of these same features. Well, I am mindful of the time because, you know, our, our sabbaticals are ticking away here, Rob. I mean, not, that I'm, not that I'm counting the days or anything, um, but I do want to make sure you, you get back to, to your life. And, and uh, even if our listeners are thirsting for more. Before we go, Rob, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on? What's, what's coming up next? Yeah, I mean, uh, like any assistant professor, I got a lot of projects going right now. So uh, I've done a lot of recent work on evictions and some of their consequences. But um, and so I encourage people to go go look for those. But uh, I right now I've got some work uh, trying to understand a bit more about this 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 question that we talked a little bit about of public housing versus vouchers and kind of mm-hmm. how to think about that, how to think about it from the tenant's perspective. Sort of what types of choices do tenants make if they're offered one but not the other? If they're offered both, oh. what can we use uh, about those decisions to learn about sort of people's valuation of these different? tools and sort of what are some of the implications of those uh, decisions that tenants make about whether or not, like, should I go apply for public housing? Should I apply for vouchers? What happens if I get one offer and for public housing and and not a voucher offer? What happens if I get a voucher offer and not a public housing offer? Sort of how does that impact who leases up in the program? Uh, and sort of like, does it influence the mix of who lives in public housing and who lives or who's, who's using vouchers. And, and so hopefully lots of work on the frontier uh, on those topics. Very cool. I look forward to, to that and more. Shane, any, any last words? What, anything we forgot? I got nothing. Thanks so much, Rob. <laughs> yeah, this was awesome. Thank you guys for having me. Cool. That is it for our first episode of the new year. 
You can read more about Professor Collinson's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is there at MC underscore Lens. Thanks for listening. See you in a few weeks.